They don't care about your 900 years of combined experience or your wall of books. They only want to know one thing. Once they've signed on the dotted line, are you going to take care of them? Welcome to the Judge Shaw way, where we believe providing an exceptional client experience is just as important as quality legal representation. From secret tips for creating unforgettable wow moments to proven customer service pointers, the Judge Shaw way is everything you need to go from being a good lawyer to owning a great brand. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Judge Shaw. Today, I'm joined by special guest Brad Rex. Brad is a graduate of both the U.S. Naval Academy and the Harvard Business School, both with distinctions. He has had a long executive corporate career. He was picked up by Walt Disney Company, where he was uh, started in financial and strategic planning for parks and resorts. He was later tapped to lead the Epcot theme park. Following that, he was chief customer officer for Hilton Grand Vacations. He became CEO of a funeral company, following now as president and CEO of eHome Counseling Group, which is an online mental health counseling company. He is also the author of The Surpassing Life, 52 Practical Ways to Achieve Personal Excellence. Brad, welcome to the show. Thank you, John. It's wonderful to be with you here today. Brad, in August of 2001, you were with Walt Disney Company, and they name you now leader of Epcot Theme Park. And I looked in research, and I saw that over 9 million people had visited Epcot that year. You started on September 10th, and now found yourself the second day on the job, and it's 9-11. What was that like? Well, it was obviously a very challenging time. I had never run a Disney theme park before. So I was actually at a media training program. Uh, We were getting ready for a big press event. And the consultant that was doing it was from the Washington, D.C. area. And so she got a call on her cell phone. She said, is there a TV anywhere here? And we turned on the TV and and we watched as uh, the, the Twin Towers uh, were attacked. Other executives in the room said, you know what, we better go activate our emergency command centers and get prepared here because we frankly didn't know if we were a terrorist target. Mm-hmm. So we did that, went back, and the challenge was we had only closed the parks one time before in history, and that was in preparation for a hurricane actually in the prior year. But actually, the parks never opened. So we had never closed the parks with guests inside. And we had about 10,000 guests in the park at that time. We were very concerned that if we talked about a terrorist incident or whatever, people might stampede toward the exits. So what we decided to do was to use the best thing that Disney has, and that's its cast members. And so we asked the cast members to pass the word amongst the guests Epcot is closing early today due to a national incident. Please proceed to the exits and return to your resorts and you'll get more information. And so that it was a very orderly exit. And the one thing I'll never forget, Judd, is that without being told, our cast members went out and they lined the promenade. And as people were leaving, they smiled and waved goodbye. 
because they knew that was going to be a last memory of those folks, you know, before they were going to go back into a, a very challenging situation for, for our world. And so we just had amazing cast members. And you have to realize many of the cast members were from the New York, Pennsylvania areas that, that and DC areas that have been attacked. So the first inclination would have been to run backstage and, and call home, but they stayed in their positions and they took care of the guests first. So my podcast always focuses on client service, something about client service, building a world-class customer service organization. And for all those listening, Disney calls their employees cast members. So what you're really talking about is having all of your employees get into a client-focused mode and give this guests an experience that didn't traumatize them and allowed for this orderly exit. How do you implement that so quickly and so well with your frontline team? How do you do that? Well, it's something that you have to create in your culture. A couple things that, that Disney does. Um, the first is in their hiring, they select great people. And that's you're only as good as the people that you hire in your organization. And so they put a lot of effort into recruiting, hiring, and then training their people. Everybody goes through a program and that's required to really learn about the culture and what Disney's all about and this whole focus on guest service. So that's, that's the first thing. The second is the leadership. And you've got to have great leaders who get the vision, who are focused on customer service, who remove barriers to creating great guest service and allow the cast members to make a lot of the decisions about that interaction with the guest. So if you're required to force people to go up the chain of command to make a decision, then you essentially are not going to have great service. You've got to train your frontline people to make those decisions, which is what we saw at Epcot that day without being told they knew intuitively what they should do. And that's very challenging. It takes a long time to do. And I would say, you know, again, training is incredibly important, uh, especially these days. You know, many people don't know how to interact well with other people. And so you have to do things like role playing and, and, and really finding the, the best people. But there was an interesting study done and it, it showed, looked at interactions between a person at a, at a you know, like grocery store counter and, and the guests there, the customer. The bigger the smile of the person behind the counter, the more the customer had a good experience. At the end of the study, they said, well, how do you get people who you know smile more? And they said, you hire happy people. Right. <laughs> I mean, and, and so actually part of your interview with Disney is to see, are you a positive, outgoing, happy person? Same thing with Southwest Airlines. So it's funny to me when I go to uh, a business and you know you serve the lawyers, and the receptionist is the most dour, unhappy person mm. possible. And I'm thinking, why in the world do you not have a very positive, happy person as that initial welcome into your office? Because that can set the tone for the rest of the interactions throughout the day. We gave our um, front desk the title ambassador of first impressions 
Absolutely. That's exactly right. And actually, though, if you think about it, and again, this is a Disney thing, every person in your organization is, is a salesperson for your organization. And they represent your organization. We tell people, when you put on that Disney name tag, you're not just rep- representing yourself. You are representing all of Disney. And that's a big responsibility. We use our core values to help us serve as sort of a beacon for how we want our cast members at my company to to sort of go about their day, right? And their daily task responsibilities and contact with clients. And it sounds like Disney has done just that in terms of their vision. So when these cast members have to jump into action, it's almost built into their DNA. They know inherently what Disney would want them to do as people are leaving to give them a positive experience. Well, and we talk about kind of the four priorities. So safety, courtesy, show, and efficiency. That is your order of priorities when you're making a decision. So the number one thing is always safety. And then, you know, the next is courtesy. So let me give you an example of that. If you were to see someone at Disney, let's say, climbing up on top of a wall, a guest was climbing up on top of a wall, you would first courteously say, sir, please don't climb up on that wall. If they were to continue, you would get much stronger and you'd say, sir, get off the wall now because now it's a safety issue, right? And Mm -hmm. so when people know these are the priorities, then, for example, safety, courtesy, show, efficiency, Disney always wants to go on with the show. But if, for example, it's a major lightning storm out of safety, they're going to cancel it. And when you give people very clear priorities that way, they then know what decision to make in a particular circumstance. You moved from financial, financial strategy with Disney over to operations, which I think from what I understand was actually unusual at the time. But to get into operations, what kind of training did you need? Well, my mentor and boss at the time was uh, Lee Cockrell. And Lee was the executive vice president for operations for all of Walt Disney World. So understand what a huge job that is. I mean, four theme parks, I think at the time they had 20,000 hotel rooms, two water parks, uh, what is now Disney Springs, and, and he was over all of it. And when I went to Lee and said I was interested in getting into operations, he said, that's fine, Brad, but I want you to learn what operations are like here at Disney. And I'd like you to do a program where you actually train in frontline roles across Walt Disney World. And so my first job in operations was in a staff role. But in addition to doing that job, I spent about a day a week in costume in 50 different roles and locations across Walt Disney World, over 400 hours of in-costume training. So I, I made beds at the Grand Floridian. I hauled trash at the Magic Kingdom. I rode the Tower of Terror in the middle of the night uh, for maintenance. Uh, and Lee said... I don't want you to just kind of go and observe. I want you to do these jobs so you understand what it's like to make beds for for eight hours a day or what Mm -hmm. it's like to work in the quick service restaurant kitchen. And so there was nothing that could have prepared me better for taking over at Epcot because I really had an understanding of, of the jobs. And I had also made relationships with a lot of the frontline cast members who now knew me, trusted me, 
because they would say, you're a vice president. What in the world are you doing, you know, out here hauling trash with me? But, but when I would do that, they would get to know me and then they became my listening posts through the organization. And so they would come to me and tell me things like, Hey, Brad, this program's not really going very well, or, Hey, you've got a problem in this, you know, location, you ought to look into it. And I often knew about things long before the other, my other executives that work for me. Now I know why I heard a rumor that you were the original undercover boss. There you go. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it sounds like it's one of those uh, sayings, you can't tell somebody else to do something unless you really know how to do it. Right. And if I'm going to tell somebody even down to how to sweep a floor, the best way to do it is I got to learn how to sweep the floor myself. I'll learn the efficiency. I get a, a good whatever on it and I build a relationship. Well, and it sends a great message in your organization. Um, I wasn't really allowed to have favorites at Epcot, but I did have a favorite team, and that was the custodial team. They were so incredible, and I would put on a custodial costume, and I would go out and pan and broom in the park. And the amazing thing when I did that was that I became invisible. I could be out there, and no one would know or even guess, hey, here's the, the vice president out in the park in a custodial costume. So I could watch how the managers interacted with our cast members. I could see and talk to the guests and get their firsthand opinions. And it also those sent a message because the word would get out and the cast members would say, did you see Brad's out here panning and brooming in the park? And it would say, look, every single job here is critically important. I used to meet with the custodial team and in pre-shift meetings. And of course, there'd be kind of a, a buzz. Oh, you know, the vice president's here, vice president's here. And I would say, you know what? If I disappeared for a month, the park would keep running. There wouldn't be much that was missed. Everything would be fine. If you disappeared for a day, what would this place be like? I mean, filthy restrooms, kitchens, trash all over. So who's more important, you or me? Well, I know that uh, Walt himself would be proud because if I know the history somewhat, not as much as you, of Disney, I know that a big thing when he was sitting on that bench with his children at that uh, merry-go-round, as the story goes, it was very important for him to develop a theme park that was clean. Absolutely, and that's... You know, that's another thing that you learn on day one as a Disney cast members. Everybody picks up trash. And it would really annoy my kids when I'd walk through the park and, and I'd go and, you know, bend over, pick up a napkin, throw it away. And there's like, Dad. And then it would really annoy them when I would go into a mall and do that. Okay. So they'd be like, Dad, we're not at Disney. You don't have to do that here in the mall. But, but on the other hand, you just think about if everybody did that, you know, how much nicer things would be. So, yeah, everyone is trained to, to keep the parks clean and, and do everything they can because it just makes it a whole lot better place to, to work. A lot of talk about trash, but I have to tell you, I heard actually one time that they said, if you want to find leaders in your own organization, look for the ones that walk by and pick up a piece of trash and throw something out. Absolutely. That's a good, good indication. You know, I, I got to ask, we're talking about Disney and you go from Disney to death care. How did that happen? 
Well, a very kind of interesting story. So I got a call. For, I had left Disney, gone to Hilton, then had my own company for a period. That's actually when I wrote my book, The Surpassing Life. And then I got a call from a recruiter. And she said, Brad, I've got this private equity-backed company. They have kind of a role of consolidation play. They're looking for a CEO. Are you interested? And I said, well, you know, is it theme parks, resorts? And she goes, no, it's funeral homes and cemeteries. And I was like, ah, that wasn't quite on my radar screen. But what really intrigued me was she said, this is an industry that hasn't changed in 50 years. And the private equity company realizes that a funeral is an experience. So Mm. they want someone who knows how to do experiences. And they specifically targeted the hospitality industry. And they said, oh, and by the way, if we could get a Disney person, that would be even better. And so the opportunity to really kind of revolutionize or innovate in an an industry uh, is what attracted me. And that's actually what we did. We brought a lot of Disney, basically, to the funeral industry. So you leave the happiest place on earth to go to a cemetery. And um, tell me about when you talk experience, I did read that um, there's multi-sensory experience. What is that? So the company that I led was Foundation Partners Group, and we created something called the Share Life Multi-Sensor Experience. So, you know, you ask the question, why would someone have their service in a funeral home? You know, one of the biggest competitors to funeral homes these days are hotels and restaurants that do celebrations of life. You know, if you think about a hotel, it's well set up for that sort of thing. So why have it in a funeral home? Well, what we did was to create this share life multi-sensor experience where we would have on one of the walls of the the funeral home a large screen. We'd have high-definition projectors, high-quality sound, and even a scent generator. So those of you who have been on the Soarin' attraction at Epcot, it's a large screen, Omnimax screen, and, and they have scent generators. So when you're going over different areas. You may have the scent of oranges or incense or whatever it is. So with that share life experience, you could do your service anywhere. You could do it at the beach, at the golf course, at the Eiffel Tower, because we would use the projectors and the sound and the scent to recreate those areas. One of the things I was most proud of, Judd, when we did that was our veterans backdrop. And so you may be familiar with the, the missing man formation, where the planes come in and then one plane veers off. So sure. we would project that on the back screen as we played taps for veterans. And it was just absolutely incredible. Powerful. But it really released the creativity, too, of our, our funeral directors and, and the families that we served. And so, for example, one woman was known in her community for inviting people once a year to her lake house and they would have a big barbecue and this would be open the entire community. It would really be kind of honoring first responders in the community. And so at her service, we actually had taken pictures of the backdrop from her lake house, the view from her lake house. And then we pumped in a smoke scent to remind people of the barbecue that was served. So it was just incredible what we could do and, uh, complete, had a completely different experience for people. The other interesting thing we did was to bring technology in and, and webcast services. 
and realize this was long before COVID. So actually, when COVID hit, uh, Foundation Partners Group was in a very unique position to serve people because they were able to do things you know, more remotely than anybody else out there. Tell me about EHO. So uh, about six years ago, a good friend of mine came to me and said, how would you like to reinvent the behavioral care industry? And he had picked up an article about veteran suicides. And he said, if we could take the counseling to the veteran and do it virtually, so do it just like we're doing by video, face-to-face video, then we remove the whole confidentiality or stigma issues because the person can do it completely privately. They don't have to travel to a counselor's office, sit in a counselor's waiting room. We have much more accessibility. And you realize that a lot of people live in areas that don't have any counselors. And you know they're not going to drive two to three hours to a counseling session. So we can help prevent these suicides and help veterans to get better. And so that got me interested. And, and I'm in. And he said, I need you to build out the whole company, the infrastructure. So we formed eHome Counseling and you know, spent the last six years providing virtual-only mental health counseling services. Now, it's interesting, when COVID hit, a lot of counseling services you know, were forced to go online, uh, bricks-and-mortar facilities, but we had already created all that. And then you know, we use metrics in our care. It was interesting because when I entered the industry, and again, I hadn't had any background in behavioral health. I was just kind of shocked to find out how few providers, counselors use any kind of metrics. And how do you know if what you're doing works if you don't have some kind of measurement of it? And so from day one, we do a comprehensive uh, assessment for everyone who comes into our program on multiple conditions, anxiety, depression, bipolar disorder, PTSD. And then we actually reassess you as you go through so we can track your improvement and you can track your improvement. And you see that you're getting better. Because another big question people ask is, well, how do I know when I'm done? And, and because of this assessment process, we can tell you, you're back to a normal level. You, you're discharged. You're done. The other thing we did was to have a fabulous client care team that talks individually with each of our clients to find out what they're looking for in their counselor and then match them up with a counselor that meets their needs and their schedule, because that's another huge issue out there. People say, how do I find a counselor? And we do that for you. Once again, trying to remove the barriers to care. Mental health is a huge issue right now because of COVID. And it was bad prior to COVID, but now COVID has made it dramatically worse. And so we're just trying to help as many people as we can to to get great mental health care. That's great work. So in all these years, you've had a lot of bosses. What characterizes a great leader? I think there's a couple of things. So one is humility. And you really find the great leaders out there are humble men and women who admit what they don't know, who you know want to learn from others. They are not the kind of lorded over people or be you know autocratic or my way or the highway. Uh, they really are great listeners. So I'd say humility is very important integrity. You know, we talk about that a lot, but if you have leaders who lack integrity, people don't know where they stand. And you can see if you look at companies like Enron, leaders without integrity can not only take down themselves, they take down their employees, they take down their companies, they can take down their entire communities. So integrity is also critically important. 
I think, you know, the third element is, is the person out there doing this to serve? All right. There are people who do it to make money, who do it to for their own power and glory. But the great leaders out there really want to serve the people who work for them and help them to achieve their highest potential. There's a great phrase, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And great leaders care about their people and therefore create trust. Because if you know that, that your leader is looking out for you, you're going to trust that leader and you're going to follow that leader. And so I think that's critically important. You know, I talk about the four C's, competence, commitment, character, and compassion. That's what the great leaders all have. And some leaders out there that are competent, and that's fine. But if they don't have character, if they aren't committed, if they don't have compassion, they're not going to be a great leader. And they're probably not somebody you want to follow. We'll get to your book in a minute, but I, I did read it. And um, uh, that humility point, is, is that related to when you talk about pride derailers? Absolutely. So there's a chapter in my book called Humble Success and the ways that pride can can derail your career and your life. And oftentimes that comes from where you're, again, you're not accepting of others, you're not listening to others, you are thinking you know it all. And a good leader will be the first to admit that they don't know it all or even any of it. And they'll ask questions. One of the things I learned when I was first starting my career, I was afraid to ask questions because I thought, well, if I ask a question, people are going to assume I don't know things. But the reality is people know you don't know it, and they're just waiting for you to admit it and ask the question. So I really switched into much more of a mode of help me understand, you know, how, why do we do it this way? Um, show me how to, to, to run this point of sale system. Okay, and then you really change the dynamic because now that person is leading and teaching you and they appreciate that and say, this is somebody who's willing to learn and wants to, to do better. So, yes, absolutely. Um, if you but hold on, Brad, I, I got to challenge you here for a minute because, of course, I, I, I want to find out how that doesn't happen in your life and other great leaders. You graduate with distinction at the U.S. Naval Academy. You become an officer on a nuclear ballistic submarine. You go to Harvard Business School. You're tapped to leave one of the greatest resorts, if not the greatest resort in the world. Like, how does pride not creep into your life? Well, I believe, for example, higher education should show you how little you know not how much you know. <laughs> and I don't know about other people, but when I went to the academy, I, you know, I thought, oh, I'm this hotshot high school graduate, you know, BMOC, big man on campus, whatever. And when I got the academy, I found out, oh my, number one, there are a lot of people that were smarter than I was. Um, but number two, all these different areas, I mean, aeronautical engineering, mechanical engineering, uh, you know, economics, physics, math, and, and you find out how little you really know. And then the same thing, you know, went to business school. Uh, I met with these incredible classmates, incredible professors, and who would, you know, know things in depth about marketing or finance or operations. And because they had spent most of their lives in those areas. So that I think really keeps you humble. And then, you know, every experience I got into, I've had 
uh, 20 different jobs in 12 different industries in 35 years. <laughs> and so, so it really, you find out how stupid you are every time you change jobs because you have to learn that job and learn that industry. Now, I will say one benefit of having had that many industries and everything is you see patterns and, and you kind of can, are able to go into a new situation and kind of know what to focus on. But still, it, anybody who kind of thinks they know it all is clueless and, and really doesn't know anything at all. I also found a common, I'm hearing a common theme that every time you, you joined a new uh, company or went into a new industry, you continue to say today, I didn't know anything about it. It was totally new. I went from the happiest place on earth to funerals. I went from funerals to to counseling live people, right? Where's the first place to start? When you take over a new new job? Sure. I I would say first you have to learn as much as you can uh, from as many people as you can. So uh, leaders are readers. So you should constantly be reading. And so when you enter into a new industry, obviously be reading about that. Uh, but also you know, talking to industry experts, talk to people who have been in the industry for a long time. Now, I think one benefit that I had was I would go into these situations with fresh eyes. And and I was always willing to kind of ask, and again, not in an offensive way, but so you know, help me understand why we do it this way. And and in many cases, you would find out people couldn't tell you why they did it that way. <laughs> it's just that's the way we've always done it. And you say, well, have we ever thought about doing it this way? Uh, and so, as I said earlier, using metrics in, and assessments, well, we just never did it that way. And so when you come in with fresh eyes, you can ask questions. And, and in some cases, they're perfectly reasonable explanations. But in others, you find out that it's just the way it's always been done, and that's where the opportunity lies for, to change things. And you know, you you want to kind of try to be in, in the head of what's going on, but also you've got to be careful not to be too early in what you do. I had a company that I was the CEO of uh, that I started that failed because it was too early in the cycle. It was genetically guided nutritional supplements. But this was back, you know, whatever, 15, 20 years ago, and that whole idea was just too early. If I had started that company today, it probably would have been successful. So you also have to – and that's, that's humbling in and of itself uh, right. when you have a company that, that failed. So all these experiences, though, kind of add up and, and give you, I think, hopefully a great perspective on, on life. How much did you learn from that failure? Well – Again, it was very humbling. It was, um, you can find out that maybe it's a great idea, but it's all about the timing on the idea. And it's also about the partners that you're with. And, and so, but you learn and you make mistakes. And, and the whole thing is then you don't make those same mistakes again. And, and you go into it, uh, the next venture, hopefully more knowledgeable. And, and that one ends up being successful. Let's talk about your book. You're the author of The Surpassing Life, 52 Practical Ways to Achieve Personal Excellence. I have to tell you, I read the book available on Amazon in, I think, paperback and in Kindle version. Easy concepts, quick chapters. I enjoyed it. I think that we could all love to have more money, 
health, strong relationships, success in our personal lives and our professional lives. You know, there's really these topics that can take us from a good life to an amazing one. How did you come to write this book? Well, I really wrote it to share with my kids the mistakes that I had made in life so that hopefully they wouldn't make the same mistakes. And then kind of got to the point, well, maybe this would help other people. I did. I was a, a speaker uh, prior to writing the book. And what I found is people would come up to me after my talks and say, where can I get your book? And I'm like, well, I don't have a book. And they'd say, well, you got to have a book. <laughs> and, and, and then actually, Lee was a great, as I mentioned earlier, mentor. He's a fabulous speaker and author. And I can't yeah. count how many books he's written and how many languages that they've been translated into. But he said, yeah, if you want to be a speaker, you need to, to write a book. And so that was really the genesis of it. And I, I appreciate what you said, Judd, about you know, easy, simple chapters. It's 52 you know, two to three page chapters, you can, you know, read one a week, one a day, but it, it's meant to kind of share some ideas and give you practical advice. Um, I really think young people ought to read it because I find today a lot of young people, there are many things that, that they don't know how to do. And so, for example, you talked about financial, you know, how should I invest my money? How do I budget? How do I do these sorts of things? And it was interesting. I had a, a young couple and uh, they, uh, I talked to them and, and they had read my book a couple years ago and they said, you know, we really wished we had followed your advice on investing <laughs> because we, I don't, and they weren't specific about it, but they said we lost a lot of money in a bad investment. And, and they said, if we had only just done what you said, we would be a lot better off today. So the whole idea is how can I help people and maybe get them to think about things a little bit differently and uh, give them what some might say common sense, but unfortunately, as they say, common sense is not all that common these days. So, so hopefully it can help people. I love the purpose of that book. And I didn't know that. And as I'm reading it, the real feeling that overcame me as I'm reading this book is I have to read this to my kids. I really felt that way. It was like, I've already made some of these mistakes. Let me try to correct them. Some of them are, I, I could have used this back then, but it's a book I need to read to my kids. I didn't even know that that's why you read it. And that's exactly what comes through when you read it. Oh, well, thank you. Thank you for that. And, you know, I think that the best thing for any type of author or speaker is where somebody comes up to them later and says, hey, this really had an impact. And the things that, that I did because of reading your book for a better life for me and my family. And I mean, it doesn't get better than that. Right. At the end of the, each chapter, you have um, sort of uh, action plans and payoffs. And a lot of these are from very basic, just getting better sleep, going to the doctor, becoming more productive, living healthy. But I also found an undertone in many of these, which is servant leadership. So when it comes back to sort of being a leader, can you tell me more about that? Yes. And, and once again, I think servant leadership, I think it's the only type of effective leadership at the end of the day. And it's not just in the work environment. It's in your family environment, for example. Do you, you know, serve the other members of your family? If you're a husband, do you serve your wife? Or do you kind of expect her to serve you with your children? 
And do you teach them to serve other kids that they interact with? So it's it's a much broader spectrum than just, say, in the work environment. There are many books I've seen you know, in the business environment about servant leadership. But if you think about if all of us were primarily trying to help others to, to achieve more, to, to reach their potential, how much better of a world would we live in? To, if it's all about serving others rather than being self-serving and, and just taking care of yourself. Brad, you have accomplished so much in your life. What's next for you? It's interesting. I talk to people who say, oh, you know, five-year plan for my life and things like that. But I haven't ever been able to really do that because if you look at it, you know, these different opportunities have come up and and I'm a person of faith. I'm see what, you know, I think God has a plan for my life. And and so kind of an interesting story when I was in the Navy, I trained in Orlando at the Naval Training Center. That's where the nuclear power program was. That's all gone now. It's something called Baldwin Park. But I was there in 81 and early 1982 with my wife. And I remember in May of 82, as we were leaving, I said, you know what? Sometime we've got to go back and visit that new theme park that Disney's opening at the end of the year. (laughs) And that was Epcot. So who could have ever dreamed that I would come back and actually lead Epcot? So that's where life can take you. And and, uh, But what really drives me at this stage in my life is what can I do to help people? And that's what really got me into counseling, uh, running a nationwide counseling company, because there's so much need out there. And when you help someone who has a mental health condition, you're not just helping them, you're having a legacy impact on their entire family. Because you think about their kids and everything else. I mean, if you can help them, then those kids are going to grow up completely differently. And we see that time and time again. So that's what makes it worthwhile. That's why I get up every day. And I just encourage everyone to try to find something that will uh, help to other people in what they do. Speaking about helping, who are the clients of eHome Counseling? How would somebody get in touch with eHome? So we, um, again, are nationwide. Uh, we're in network with all the major insurance companies. Uh, that's a big deal for a lot of people that want to use their insurance. We also are a major partner with Wounded Warrior Project. Uh, we've treated thousands of veterans through Wounded Warrior Project. And if you're a post-9-11 veteran, you can get free mental health care from Wounded Warrior Project. It's an amazing organization. So I really encourage uh, veterans to, to contact Wounded Warrior. But uh, but yeah, anyone can contact us, uh, ehomecounseling.com. Uh, it's our website. Uh, you can reach us you know, by phone, by email, by contact form. And, and we just want to help people. We are, uh, Judd, I know many lawyers listen to this. We are a member benefit of the Florida Bar Association. Um, as well as some other, you know, the Philadelphia Bar and Wyoming Bar and a few others. So, so we actually have a page on our website dedicated to lawyers. And uh, so if in, in, you're in the legal profession, you and your families, we'd love to, to take care of you. you know, lawyers, just like anyone else, you know, mental health is, is certainly a, a topic. Lawyers actually have twice the incidence of mental health issues compared to the general population. So, but they also are much more hesitant to get care. And that's why the confidentiality of eHome is is very important. You don't have to be seen going into a counselor's office. Wow. Brad, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate um, 
Everybody out there, the surpassing life, 52 practical ways to achieve personal excellence. And I'm telling you, read them. Your life just goes up when you close a chapter. You just, you, I, I felt like my life just got better. Thank you so much. Uh, it's been a pleasure being with you here today. Brad, thanks so much. Bye now. Are you ready to take the next step to creating an unforgettable brand? Subscribe to The Judge Shaw Way in your favorite podcast app and join the conversation on social media at Judge Shaw Injury Law. Have topic suggestions or questions? Email us at podcast at judshawinjurylaw.com and be sure to include an address where we can send you some cool swag. Attorney Advertising Materials. This podcast is designed for general information purposes only. Nothing on this podcast should be taken as legal advice for an individual case or situation. This information is not intended to create, and viewing does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. No aspect of this advertisement has been approved by the Supreme Court. Any results set forth herein are based upon the facts of that particular case and do not represent a promise or guarantee. Those with legal questions should seek the advice of an attorney.